In this episode of the Tech Tidbits podcast, myself and Rohan, a friend and fellow engineering and business student, sit down for a conversation with Jeff Booth, manager of AI strategy at Deloitte's Omnia AI division. We speak about everything from the future of AI in strategy consulting to his background in engineering chemistry and subsequent diploma in brewing. As the first guest on the Tech Tidbits podcast, Jeff does a fantastic job of breaking down the ins and outs of AI within the scope of Deloitte and the enterprise solution space as a whole, sharing insights that are both easy to understand and thought-provoking. If you wish to learn more about the work done by the team at Omnia AI, please check out their website or connect with Jeff directly via LinkedIn. If you enjoy this conversation, feel free to follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts for more episodes on the ubiquity, applicability, and future implications of artificial intelligence and technology as a whole. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Jeff Booth. To start off, uh, can you tell us just a little bit about your educational background and you know your undergraduate experience and all that fun stuff? Yes, yeah, absolutely. So uh, I went to Queens, um, which I know might be a dirty word here, but uh, my undergrad is in engineering chemistry. So I'm an accredited engineer and a certified chemist. Um, and coming out of university, I graduated right into the, uh, the teeth of the recession. I knew kind of by the time that I was in third year that I didn't actually want to be an engineer. And so I've been on this, uh, this journey to find the right, uh, the right career and the right place to work for, for me. Um, so that's, that's kind of what led me on my journey. I don't know if you want me to expand a little bit more on, on sort of how I landed where, I, where I'm at or just focus on my education. Yeah, I think, I think we, we can definitely dive into that. But one thing that I am interested in is this idea of like engineering chemistry. Is that like a chemical engineering type of like similar to that? Yeah, yeah. The, the way that it's always described at Queens is that chemical engineers make large amounts of uh, boring goo and uh, engineering chemists make very small amounts of, of interesting goo. Um, but but effect, effectively, the, the intention of the program is to give engineers that are... Uh, have the ability to scale up processes. So to work at the research level, understand lab-based processes, and then understand the industrial implications of those processes and how to translate something that happens at the lab bench scale into an industrial environment so that it can be mass produced. Interesting. And what led you to, because it is like, at least relatively speaking, perhaps like a smaller discipline or less well-known. So what, if anything, pushed you into that field coming out of high school yeah, I mean, chemistry was my best marks in high school. It was what I really enjoyed doing. And when I'd been applying uh, to universities, I'd just been applying as a chemical engineer, but Queens has a general first year. So you get to kind of explore and uh, just talking to some of the people that were in that program, understanding the ability to work on the research side and get that rounded experience uh, really appealed to me. So um, I was very excited to do it. It was a ton of work, but uh, I have no regrets. So I know, I know you mentioned that you were on like this journey of finding like what career you wanted to do. So we saw that you also did like a diploma in brewing and distilling, which I found really interesting. So I was wondering what really encouraged you to pursue that diploma. Yeah. So, so like I mentioned, uh, I graduated right into the teeth of the last recession. And so jobs for new grads were few and far between. Um, everyone says my first job, I worked for a company called Anheuser-Busch InBev, which most Canadians will recognize as Labatt Brewing. And uh, I was brought on into a management training program. And part of that program was they funded the uh, self-study and writing of uh, the 
what is <clears throat> what is effectively the accreditation in the UK for for brewers. So over my first two and a half years with the company, I studied on my own and wrote a series of insanely difficult exams um, to be qualified as a, a brewer with the UK Guild. Um, and that qualifies me to, I suppose, brew and act in a master brew master brewer capacity. Okay, that's actually pretty interesting. So from there, how did you go from like a diploma in brewing and distilling to like ending up at Deloitte? as a consultant? Yeah, so I mean, my career has been defined by figuring out what I don't like doing and then crossing that off the list. <laughs> so you know, I started in engineering and you know, I realized by the third year that the sort of pure technical engineering wasn't for me, that I wanted to be involved with people, that I wanted to be client facing maybe to a certain extent, certainly that I wanted some of the management side that came with it. So I took, uh, I split my fourth year in half. I was a part-time student for two years and I ran a coffee shop uh, on campus at Queens. It's called The Tea Room. It was North America's first uh, zero post-consumer waste coffee shop. Um, so it had been started two years before. Um, I was the third head manager. I had a staff of 60 people. I had five assistant managers and I ran a full-fledged coffee shop. And I absolutely loved it. It was one of the like cornerstone experiences of my undergrad. And that experience led me to look for roles that, you know, kind of had some of that technical aspect, had some of that engineering, but allowed me to play that business role. And that, you know, Labatt was kind of, or appeared to be the perfect thing for me. Um, and I started, and what I realized after a few years in the company was I don't really like operations management because operations management is typically dealing with the same problems day in and day out and never really resolving them and moving on. Um, and you know, you kind of get ground down by that after a while. And so by the time I was there for three years, I was thinking, okay, well, I'd rather do something with finite dates. I'd rather do something more project oriented. I'd rather do something that's, you know, a little bit larger in scale. And I got on with Lexus Manufacturing. Um, so I, I moved to Waterloo. I worked in the facility there. I ran the anti-corrosion program for the Lexus RX350 and 400H. So I was responsible for everything that had to do with um, you know the anti-corrosion of the vehicle so capital expenditure maintenance and refurbishment all of the capital strategy as well as you know day-to-day -day problem solving that kind of stuff and it was while i was there that i really started digging into not just like standard process control but how do we start taking all the data that's coming off of these machines and these processes and trying to optimize the line and make inferences that allow us to make smarter capital decisions um, and so to give you an idea when you're trying to you know protect a vehicle from from corrosion you take a body that's been welded together and you dip it in a bunch of like massive tanks of chemicals that coat the vehicle in an inorganic solution. And then you electrocode it. So you physically adhere paint onto it with, you know, electricity, and then you cook it. And that process alone is generating like tens of thousands of data points every second, because there's pH values and there's pump speeds and amperages and temperatures and pressures coming off all of these tanks and, and the sort of systems that support them. And by collecting that data and taking a better view of analyzing it, you can come up with better inferences because, you know, everyone has this like, you know, ingrained knowledge that, well, if you want to reduce, you know, staining on the vehicle when it's being cured, you just have to keep doing this thing 
And it says, well, if you actually look at the data and really look at what, what is impacting the rate of staining on the vehicle, the answer is actually making this tank cleaner. So if you just buy four filters for that tank, I can save you a ton of money and rework on the vehicle, improve vehicle quality. Um, so that to me was like the huge like step where I was like, this is where I want to go because I see the value of it and, and it really clicks with me. So I did uh, an online course with John Hopkins through Coursera and data science. And, and I used that opportunity to get into Deloitte. And, and the big sort of impetus for that was, you know, Toyota is a very conservative company. It was difficult to get traction on making big changes. So, you know, Deloitte definitely was the right place for me to be able to do that. Yeah, so I can kind of see like, how you kind of realize in your previous jobs that like, oh, like there's all these data points and like how to make inferences. And that's really what like the basis of machine learning is. So I was wondering like, apart from like your work experience, what kind of other relevant experience did you have about like AI or coding, like prior to starting in the AI strategy field? Yeah, so I mean, I guess I, I was pretty lucky that I was introduced to it at Queens, both through our general first year. So I had to take programming courses. I learned to program in C. And then because of the program I was in, I had to take a few courses that had sort of large computational aspects to them as well. So I, I had to do courses in um, process control and especially a course in quantum mechanics and computational chemistry. Um, so I had to learn MATLAB for that. I had to learn how a lot of that worked. And I always kept that as a skill in my back pocket. So the whole time I was at Labatt, I was trying to improve processes or make things uh, more efficient or you know, better analyze data, mostly using VBA and Excel, because those are the only tools they gave us. Um, same thing when I was at, at Toyota. And my first project at Deloitte, I actually wrote a small master data management solution in VBA and Microsoft Access um, to take the work that you know, two people were doing and scale that up across a team of 15 across three countries to, to accelerate project delivery. And, and that, you know, having that, that sort of baseline skill has allowed me to keep building on it and, and applying it in interesting ways. And, you know, kind of once you get familiar with a you know, particular language, it's a lot easier to move to a different one. You know, once you understand R, Python is the same because all of the sort of relevant um, or fundamental concepts remain the same. That makes sense. <clears throat> One, one interesting thing that I wanted to bring up is like, you have this background in um, engineering chemistry and operations, and you know you didn't get a computer science degree, for instance, but do you think in a way that your background in those other fields might have actually been an advantage heading into AI strategy where, you know, at the current point in time, at the enterprise level, AI is used more so to optimize rather than create, right? So we apply it to existing things like operations. So do you think that, domain knowledge previously might have actually played an advantage to your current role? Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's sort of two main things that, that helped me from, from my history. The first is my diversity of experience. And then the second is that sort of operational expertise. Um, I, I'll give you an example. Right now, I'm working on uh, an application to optimize pricing and, uh, and sort of make spot quote pricing more dynamic for a logistics company. So a company that handles freight movements. Um, and you know, having worked in, in warehouses, having worked in industrial facilities and you know, in, like talk to people and work with truckers and knowing what that day-to-day -day is allows me to, when a client says something, I don't have to ask for clarification or I can talk you know, 
easily with them. So it's easy to credentialize yourselves, but it's also easy to easier to make solutions that make sense. You know, like you're not pulling something out of thin air or trying to hypothesize. You've got a grounding in what you're talking about and what their needs are going to be. So it's easier to empathize with them and it's easier to make sure that you are developing something that's really going to work for them and that's going to be taken up at the end of the day. And the other thing that's important is having a diversity of experience because I'm always surprised at where one piece of experience falls into another. So I did a piece of work for um, a company that makes uh, injection molding equipment. So all of the equipment that's used to make you know, pop bottles and lipstick containers and that kind of stuff. And they had, we were trying to figure out a better way to digitize their ordering process. And the, the model that we used is a very similar model to one of the banks used for digitizing how they sell mortgages, because the products on the surface don't feel the same, but ultimately, you know, you've got two products that are complex, that some people can navigate the journey themselves and other people need help, and they can become highly customized. And so as long as you set good off-ramps in your process where people can help themselves up to a point and then feed that information into a human, you know, you can make things more efficient for everyone. And so, you know, having that breadth of experience to say, oh yeah, I've seen something similar somewhere, I can apply it here, really helps you bridge that divide and say, you know, this is an innovative solution for you, even though it's already kind of standard practice somewhere else. Yeah, so with like all this, like, your diverse experience, I'm sure that helped you a lot in your AI like strategy role. And since some of our viewers are like an undergraduate or from various different backgrounds, what advice do you have for them maybe for trying to get a job in like an AI consulting or strategy role from like a non-computer science background? I mean, I would always say like, don't, don't sell short your experiences that you have. Think about the ways that what you're doing applies to where you're going and think about what the skills are going to need to be where you're going, right? Like in a consultancy, like, yeah, we're worried about people's ability to technically deliver work and to credentialize themselves, but we're also worried about people's ability to present, to interact with a client, to think forward, to manage projects, to work with teams. Like all of those things are as important as any kind of technical skill. Because you could be the most brilliant technical person, but if you can't explain it to a client, if you can't walk them along the journey, if you can't make them believe that what we're proposing is right for them, then ultimately you're not going to be successful as a consultant. And there are so many opportunities in undergrad, in high school for people who are still, you know, at that phase of their lives to build those skills and get those experiences that, you know, I, I, I would caution people not to get too hung up on being super technical. And, and to really think about what other opportunities are there to build out that aspect of your skill set. Yeah, for sure. That's really good advice. So I know we've talked about like what you've done at Omnia AI and everything. So uh, there's probably some viewers who are unfamiliar with what Omnia AI does and what they do as part of Deloitte as a whole. So maybe do you want to provide a brief description about what Omnia AI does? Yeah, absolutely. So Omnia AI is our... A, what we call our AI and big data shop. But effectively, we are a full service shop, a full service practice that can handle any request from a client when it comes to data and analytics. And what we mean by that is, if you are a client who maybe you're brand new as an organization, or you're a new division within a company, or you've just never done analytics before, we can help you think through all of the things that you need to do to achieve whatever your, your goals are as an organization. 
So I'll help work through exactly where the value of analytics is and exactly how that value kind of dovetails into your mission and your own core competencies and sort of your secret sauce will help you think through who are the right people to have in the room? How should we have those people organized? How do we distribute funding across our organization to, to grow analytics? What scope are we aiming for? What are the sort of underlying technical requirements or what tools do we need to make this happen? And how as an organization are we gonna put governance around this? How are we gonna organize it and control it in a way that we can trust what we're saying, we can trust the numbers that are being presented to us and we're all kind of talking the same language. We can, you know, that, that's sort of that strategy piece. But from there, we've got, you know, we've got developers in, in de delivery centers, we've got data engineers, visualization people, cloud architects that can build these structures, platforms, specific use cases, reports, data pipelines, will enable you know, master data modules, we'll do data governance tools, all of that is in our purview. And then we have a team of data scientists that can build custom bespoke machine learning models. If that's what you're looking for, we can help you think through governance or operationalization of existing models that you have. And we can help augment your team as you seek to grow and like build that capacity in, in an organization. And, and, and then finally, we have some own products that we've built ourselves that we will sell back to um, back to our clients. So, so we do have a small, um, a small but growing shop. Um, and then recently we have um, sort of added on to our group that we're also doing most of the RPA work. Um, so that's lower, I want to say, um, all of the sort of automation work that sometimes appears or is included in the conversation with AI. We now handle that for Deloitte as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of responsibility for sure. One interesting thing is that for you, at least, you've worked you know, in manufacturing strategy at Deloitte as well as AI strategy. So one thing that I'm curious about is what is like the project workflow difference between manufacturing strategy and AI strategy, particularly, particularly with respect to you know, after the client has had their solution given to them? Because it would seem like there's a lot more of a focus on maintenance once that solution is implemented with the AI strategy then might typically be seen in a regular consulting project. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, it's a question about client life cycle and what are the things that we can do for a client as Deloitte? Because from a manufacturing perspective, you know, we're not mechanics. We don't have electricians or tradesmen. We can't make physical changes in people's, um, you know, manufacturing facilities. But what we can do is we can offer advice and guidance on how to organize your business, how to restructure, and we can provide you know, PMO um, facilities or PMO functions for large transformations happening in a client. So for someone in manufacturing strategy, they're typically coming to us with a problem related to their operations. We have a quality problem. We have an efficiency problem. We have a throughput problem. We need to grow and we don't know whether to add on to our existing facility or build a second one. We've got seven facilities and we don't know how to, you know, we think we need to get rid of one or, or juggle our production between them. And we will help do all of the analysis needed to guide those decisions. And then we can help guide the process of making those changes. So when it comes to, you know, changing how we approach, say, maintenance in a manufacturing facility, we can help guide and coach people through the changes that are happening in the job, but we're not going to, you know, be down on the machines turning the tools. As AI strategy, when we're talking to companies about, you know, this is the, the guidelines, this is where we're going, we can do a lot of that work, right? If someone needs something built, 
we will stand up the data platform for you. We will build all of the pipelines in and out of that platform. We will build custom models for you. And in some cases for clients who are smaller or they have, you know, this isn't a core competency for them, we can do this as a managed service where we will actually run your analytics and we'll just provide you with the outcome. You tell us what you need, we'll do it, we'll give it back to you. Um, and there are, you know, a number of clients that we've done that for, for a variety of reasons, but we can get a lot more hands-on and a lot more integrated with a client as a, you know, an AI shop because our competency includes that, that actual development work. That's really interesting, especially the part about the managing the service beyond the actual project. Seems like in that sense, it expands it far longer than would typically be the case. So that's interesting for sure. Yeah, and uh, continuing on that, I know you mentioned that Deloitte has like a couple of products that they already have like as a go-to solution that they probably sell to their clients. So I was wondering, could you talk a bit about those products and like what kind of products are you guys thinking of developing or like where do you see value of what kind of products to create? Yep, absolutely. So I mean, a lot of products, I shouldn't say a lot, but some products start out as engagements for a particular client and we'll give our client a discount in exchange for retaining the IP. And because we retain the IP, we can continue developing on it and we can create a product that applies to clients more broadly. Um, in other cases, we'll acquire a company that already has a product and help them with scaling and delivering that product. Um, some products that you'll probably recognize, the, the biggest one is called DTRAX. It's a um, contract lifecycle management tool with sort of natural language processing built on top of it to help uh, generate contracts, manage the contract negotiation process, and then monitor contracts for breaches or um, you know, when they're coming up for, for expiry or renegotiation or things like that. We have recently spun DTRAX off into an arm's length third party called Arteria AI. Um, in addition to that, we've got a tool called CRISP, which is a risk sensing platform. So it will uh, passively monitor social media for um, you know, keywords or phrases or sentiments, particularly to a specific client. Um, so the example we always give is, for automotive manufacturers, we can help them uh, detect potential recall issues before they become an issue because we can monitor what people are saying on social media about specific products. Um, but you know, it applies obviously to a bunch of bunch of industries. Um, we've got a a product that I'm not sure if it's if it's public knowledge yet, but um, or, or, if, or if we've made public the, the name of the product, but it helps with identifying areas of white space in your customers to help you uh, as an organization better target your marketing and target your customer acquisition activity. So those are the kind of products that, that we're building. It's all very B2B. You know, we don't really get down into interacting with you know, the general public, but we're building tools that help companies do what they do better and dovetail in with our own um, expertise as a, as a consultancy. The AI factory is the home for products in Omnia. So we not only have data science people there, but we also have you know, web developers, data engineers with the expertise to integrate data science models into those platforms. Um, so you can think of uh, the, an application I'm building for a client right now that is effectively a web app. You know, it's just a, a standard web application, but it's got data science components. And there's a lot of nuance around how you actually integrate a machine learning model into a web application without hurting performance while you're still meeting customer expectations, how you monitor it. Um, so that there's a nuance and, and a, 
a skill to that that is just starting to become recognized in the marketplace. And that, that's the home for us is, is the AI factory. Interesting. So sticking with the idea of like the AI factory and the development of these like solutions, um, and I guess from your perspective as well, what sort of challenges have you encountered with clients who are perhaps already highly AI enabled? They already have a bunch of systems in place. And they just want you to tweak something versus one that's yet to integrate with AI systems at all. Are there any particular challenges that arise with either of those that, that are coming to mind? Uh, I mean, with most of our clients or most of the things that we are attempting to, uh, to help them with, if they're lower on the maturity scale or they're, they're still new to the space, right-sizing expectations is always like the first order of business. There's a lot of hype around AI. There's a lot of misinformation floating around and making sure that people understand what it is they're getting into when they say AI and what it means for them as an organization and how much value is really there. Uh, it, it is always a challenge because people will come in with sky high expectations. They'll come in with, um, you know, preconceived notions about what it's going to do for them. Some people think that we're building Skynet and, you know, they can, you know, like, like 30 people can be let go or something like that. And it's typically not the case, you know, typically AI is there to help people that are already doing their job, do their job better, as opposed to, um, you know, absolutely replacing people that in an organization and the, the value is from, you know, giving better insights to make decisions faster and decisions better, as opposed to, you know, just rote optimizing something or taking control of an entire company. For, for companies that are more, like, further along the development curve or the maturity curve, whatever you might call it, um, you know, we, as Canada, unfortunately, are laggards, so we don't have many of those. Um, you know, we're not going to come out and say that that there aren't some companies like that in Canada, but we we don't see as many of them. Most of the things that they are struggling with are scaling. So there are companies that have data science teams that got robust processes for managing machine learning models, but what they what they have difficulty with is bringing that to a larger scale across their organization. And so things that we're helping them think through are how do I get people outside of a core group to start taking on more of this work? Or how do I make this work more impactful? How do I allow it to spread further through the organization and get other people to take advantage of the work that I'm doing so that we can reap the benefits of it? It is funny that you mentioned this idea of like Skynet and, and the potential for people. Uh, it, it does seem like, you know, of course, a certain subset of people will always have you know, a fear of these new technologies. And I guess that ties into the interesting point of how Omnia AI like takes on this idea of like addressing change management in an organization that if you consult for um, and create an AI solution for might make some employees there feel as though you know their role is now constricted because there's this AI that's doing half of their job for them for instance. So is that a portion that you typically have to go through as part of your project workflow? I mean, there's, there's, there's two aspects of change management when it comes to uh, machine learning or, or AI. And the first is, yeah, sort of that sort of base level, people that are interacting with the models. And I think that in, in my experience, bringing people along for the journey, explaining what you're doing and how it's going to make their lives better often helps sell them on that. But you can't come in from a position of, you know, we're going to build this thing and, you know, it's going to 
change the way you work. It's, we're going to build this thing and it's going to give you another tool. It's going to give you another lever that you can pull to make better decisions or to improve on existing processes. Um, I think the other lever of it is, you know, how do we think about these things as an organization? How do we think about decisions? And how do we think about the information that we give people to make decisions? Because we don't want to inadvertently create an area of bias in our organization. We don't want to inadvertently create a situation where we are giving people the wrong information and they are making flawed decisions because of it. And, and orienting that change around, like we can build you a model in eight weeks and you can take it away. But if you don't do the changes that are necessary to monitor that model, to start thinking about this as a product that evolves over time and you need to monitor it to make sure that it's evolving in the way you want, ultimately people can get themselves into trouble. And that's you know something that we are trying to be very impactful with and very upfront about when we have these conversations. Sorry, my interconnection got a little unstable there. But uh, yeah, so like uh, still talk about like Omnia, yeah. like there was a book I read recently and it talked about like how the four primary drivers of like AI and like the continuation of AI is like big data, like computational power, like having competition between other companies and also like the adoption of like open source tool sets, like machine learning tool sets. So I was just wondering like, what are your opinions on that like statement? Like, what do you think? Are the main drivers and also like how is Deloitte and like Omnia AI ensuring that they're like the leaders in these drivers? Yeah, I would say that, um, you know, it, it definitely we agree with those four as like major themes. I know I do too as well. I would say that three of those are enablers and one of those is a driver. I would say that, you know, because we know that neural networks, machine learning models, these theories have been around since the 60s the ability to actually do anything with them has been contingent on having data, having processing power, you know, having you know, libraries that you can use and share freely because it's easier to do that. These enable people to do machine learning, but the only reason that people are doing it is because there are competitive pressures that are forcing them to do it. You know, as a retailer, I need to be able to service clients on a more personal level, and I can only do that at a large scale with larger data and more complex models. As a bank, I need to be you know, better at adjudicating credit risk. Or as a, And the only reason I need to do that is because my competitors are doing that. And if they don't do that, then I'm going to lose out. So I, I would say that there's, there's a couple of things that have really enabled this as a technology to, to flourish and to allow people to start taking advantage of it. But as with most things that businesses do, there's really only one reason they're doing it. Yeah, that is interesting. Like this, this shift of AI from like a, just a concept to something that's actually being implemented. And, you know, it seems like nowadays in the past couple years, it's just like exploded the applications everywhere. It's just a question of how do I use machine learning? It's this huge buzzword, as you mentioned. Um, but, but sort of flip that statement on its head. What do you think are some of like the drawbacks to this increased reliance on data science and AI? Things like that you brought potentially discrimination, privacy issues. Are those things that, that occupy your mind oftentimes when you're building these enterprise AI solutions or just in general, personally? I mean, it's, it's interesting because, you know, we're having these, I'm having a discussion like this right now with my client where there's, there's a question about what is the outcome that we're trying to get to? Like, we know that there's value here, but making sure that we deliver the information in a way that actually extracts that value and that we're generating insights that are relevant is really, really important. And 
you know, it's, it's easy to say, oh, we're going to build this model that does this thing and it should quote unquote optimize something. But if you're not clear going in about what it is that you're actually trying to optimize or what decision you're trying to make better and what the right inputs are to that decision, you really risk building yourself into a corner or going down a path that's not going to deliver value in the long term. So that there is a, a very important and very real discussion that has to happen or with a client or with anyone who's going to attempt this that says, you know, this is the business decision that we're trying to optimize. So this is the activity that we're trying to do better. And right now, these are the four pieces of data, the five pieces of data that our employees use to make this decision to do this action. We think that if they had these three other pieces of information, they would do that better. And so the first question is, would they actually do it better with those three pieces of information? And if they still had three plus five, is that the right set of data? Should we take away some of the, the information that they're considering now when they make this decision? Because we think they would make it better if they only had the three new ones and two others. Yeah, so like building on that, like I know how you mentioned that like having like those three pieces of data could help potentially help that company build like a better solution so like apart from that what other hurdles do you see in the way of like continued ai adoption across like all these industries i mean i, I will be so so i'll be honest it a large portion of it comes down to actually extracting value in a cost efficient way uh, building machine learning models is expensive you know a single model for us including the MLOps piece that allows us to sustain it could be 12 weeks of work, 12 or 14 weeks of work. That's a lot of money. And that's not counting the infrastructure, the tools, the compute power that sits underneath it. Because if you're training on terabytes of data and you're working in a cloud environment, you could be sucking up you know, $10,000, $15,000 worth of compute just, just, just training the model, let alone letting it loose. And then you have to think about all the data science teams required to maintain that model the ongoing cost of compute and storage to host that data and to extract it and do you know, run models on it. There is a cost associated with it. And if you're not careful about being picky and choosy about which models you're taking on, you could end up doing a bunch of work that doesn't actually net you any value in the long term. I think that places where models have been commercialized, if we think about speech to text, if we think about natural language processing, especially image recognition, those are areas that are just gonna keep growing because the bar for entry is lower and it costs less to integrate it into the systems that you already have or things you're already doing. The places where you're making bespoke models, talking like demand forecasting, things like credit adjudication, like those kinds of things where we are building like prediction models that are bespoke to the application, the, the actual cost of hiring a data science team setting up the infrastructure, getting everything, and then actually just doing it, like you, there is a risk that is real and that I think you know, some of our clients are running into where the juice isn't worth the squeeze. That's, that's interesting because it seems like, and I feel like that actually really points to like one of the major differences of AI in like a company like Deloitte versus you know, in social media applications where um, you know, it seems like there's a lot more of an emphasis on not just effectiveness, but also efficiency, rolling out in a manner that allows it to be put to work rather than, you know, just doing con constant A-B testing on, like, your social media platforms, for instance. So to that extent, how do you, like, balance this trade-off of efficiency in terms of the speed at which you can get out, but also the effectiveness of the model itself? 
I mean, that, that is a question for people with more mathematics than I do. Um, and we, we have approaches that we can take to speed things up, you know, certainly in how we resource projects and how we staff them. There are tools that we have that are effective to make us a little more efficient. I myself, I'm not going to share any of those today because unfortunately they're confidential. Um, but we have some, some secret sauce at Deloitte that we have through our hard won experience can we think work a little more efficiently than some people. But, um, you know, there's right now everyone's trying to figure this out. We're kind of on the cutting mm -hmm. edge and, uh, and I'd say there's no one right way to do it and, and there's no industry standard. Yeah, no, for sure. That makes sense. And I guess another piece that has been cropping up more recently in like, um, particularly enterprise AI, where you're building a solution for people who might not come from a machine learning background to understand the mathematics behind the models is this idea of explainability in the model. So how do you balance um, something like, you know, a very complex model that, that perhaps might be more efficient, like a neural network versus just a simple linear, multiple linear regression but it is understandable to that extent. Like, how do you balance something that is very effective versus also explainable? I think that piece as well. Yeah. So that I mean, that is that that's the nut that we're all working on. And I'd say there's a couple drivers that can affect that. So the the first is, you know, we can think about is there a regulatory need to explain what's going on, and are there rules? Because there are, right? You know, for mortgages, for credit applications, for you know, insurance companies. Some of their applications, you just can't use a neural network because the law does not permit it. You need to be able to prove all of the things you're taking into account when you adjudicate someone for a loan. And those things can't be their gender and they can't be their age. And even if we're not sticking those straight into a model, we can't say that some combination of features is causing the model to infer their age or causing the model to infer their gender and negatively scoring them because of those things. So there are some places where, yeah, absolutely, like a a neural network just isn't allowed. There's a big gray zone where a company will want to know why they're being told something outside of the model setting. And, and for decisions that affect either a customer or a business action, there is a middle zone where they want some level of explainability. So they can say, ah, yes, it's telling us to buy more of this product or to stock more of that product because this thing has happened or that value has changed. And at least being able to map those inputs to outputs helps give them some level of confidence that they're not just working blind. I would say that you know applications where we're just trying to make systems more efficient or you know automate a process like facial recognition, and and that's a complex topic. Maybe that's a bad one, but like image recognition in general, I don't care if I trained a model and it's looking for steering wheels. If it knows it's a steering wheel because it's round, or it knows it's a steering wheel because it's like I don't know some other combination of features as long as it brings out the fact that it's a steering wheel it's fine obviously there's nuances because when it comes to facial recognition you know the things that determine if it's a face or not can be biased by the data it was trained on so if it's mostly trained on Caucasian people it may have difficulty recognizing faces from people of other uh, of other races Yeah, I know that's also like a really big question of like, like how do we handle bias in like machine learning models? So, but like with that, I was wondering like, where do you see like the future of like enterprise AI heading? Like, do you think it'll be trying to focus more on like the greater precision and like accuracy of like optimization models? Or do you think there'll perhaps be like a greater rise in like, like creative models such as like 
like GANs or and like try to open up a whole new market? I mean, I guess it depends on the organization. Um, I think from an enterprise standpoint, and this is this is kind of important because the way that a tech company that has no obligation to make a profit approaches machine learning and the way an established blue chip company who you know lives and dies by their share value approaches machine learning are two very different things. And I think that applications that allow a company to move faster, to be leaner, or to reach more customers will always have a place in that, that enterprise realm. And it's always gonna be about optimizing things that already happen or allowing company to do what it does better. So if it can reach more customers, reach them on a more personal level, or it can better identify or, or optimize how marketing is spent, or internally, it can optimize operations, it can you know, better predict outcomes so we can make better purchasing choices or, or pricing choices. Like those are the kind of things that are really gonna drive enterprise adoption. I think there are always gonna be niche cases where we've got you know, smaller organizations that can take moonshots. You've got companies that are backed by capital that don't answer the shareholders. And, and that's where, you know, a lot of the innovation happens because they have the freedom to do it. And where those things happen and they make sense within the constraints of an enterprise company or, a, you know, what some people would consider like a legacy company, those will be adopted. But where they don't drive ultimately shareholder value, which comes from efficiency of capital and, and revenue and you know, top and bottom line growth, if I can't drive one of those things, then it, it's unlikely to be adopted widely at an enterprise level. Yeah, I guess that's really true that like each business has like their own like self motives. Um, I was like, say like you could choose like where all like the AI scientists and like researchers could like advance or like put their money and time into like one field of AI, what would you think would be like the most beneficial like area to like put your time and money into? <laughs> um, for society or for me personally? Let's do for society first and then we can do for yourself. Um, I mean, we've got a lot of problems as a society um, that, that, that can be the thing is, AI is just a tool, and it's never going to solve something on its own. It's only going to give us the ability to solve our problems better, to give us additional data, to make better decisions, um, or, or, or to uh, come up with insights that we wouldn't have come up with on our own. And, and that's ultimately what its job is. You know, I think that the problems that we have facing society are, are pretty clear. You know, we've got a significant... Um, divide in between what people at the bottom are making and what people at the top are making. And that divide's growing every day. And that is you know, a problem that we have to address as a society. We also have um, you know, a large issue with the environment and how we're gonna approach that. Uh, so you know, you, to, to me, those are the big things that are driving social unrest and are driving discord in our society. So if I was saying what's best for society, I would say you know, we probably would apply AI to better understand the climate, to better predict how the effects of our actions will impact the environment and, and mitigate them using that information, right? If I can predict that this is going to be 10 times worse than that, I should probably do that even if it costs three times more. Um, you know, as a, as a society, when it comes to our disparities, not only our income disparities, but disparities of outcomes for people of different backgrounds or different experiences, 
you know, that is a much larger net and you're probably dealing with it one subsection of the time, the way the rest of the science and humanity progresses. Yeah, it's always an interesting thing of like, where is AI gonna pop up next? It's almost like you see you see a headline nowadays and you almost can't believe it, the third things that AI is being applied to. But with that, you know, a lot of people are very fearful, doubtful of AI. Um, as we've seen throughout time, there will always be these AI peaks and then AI troughs. I think they're called AI winters, like the common thing. So do, do you think that we're headed towards like an AI winter? Do you think that expectations right now are too high or, or do you see like real tangible value behind the sort of lofty claims that are being thrown out about the capabilities of AI and ML? I mean, the, the hype cycle is real. You know, people get excited about things, they overinflate its value. And because other people are excited, they get more excited. Um, and, and ultimately, people are disillusioned, and every technology goes through that. Um, I think that, you know, fundamentally, the concept of, of analytics and the concept of using statistics to measure progress and to better predict outcomes to, to make better decisions has been with us a lot longer than AI has. You know, I think the first t-test was invented at the Guinness Brewery. Um, you know, the abacus has had a role in business for I don't know how many thousands of years. Like, I don't see our need to quantify what we do and use that quantification to make better decisions going away. And the fact that we're just getting better and better tools to do it with is just an evolution of stuff that's been happening for a really long time. So even though public perception of it and, and maybe the labels that we put on it doesn't help um, may, may, you know, go up and go down, I don't see a world where this isn't important and where this doesn't continue to, to grow as a practice in, a, in an area that businesses invest in. Yeah, so um, I, we're really approaching like the last few like 10 minutes of the podcast. So I want to ask like, what do you think is like your biggest doubt or like fear about AI? That is, that's a good question. I mean, my biggest fear about AI, and, and it's a, I suppose a fear that manifests itself across most technological changes is that this technology will not equally help people across society or even across like a, an individual business. You know, what AI and the sort of big data underneath it really allows us to do is decentralize authority because it's easier and easier for me to pull information from a very, very disparate set of factors and make a decision. Where normally I would have people like you know, 10, 20, 50 people collecting that data and reporting that data to try and make sense of it and, and generally making localized decisions that are right for localized instances. I'm now giving that power to someone at the top who can just collect all that data in a big database and figure out what's right for everyone, as opposed to having that, that human interaction closer to the, you know, John Smith might call like the, the, the true creation of value, right? The, the, hands, the hands that are creating, creating value in society. And, and I worry that by doing that, we are locking people out of the ability to be involved in these decisions. So decisions are being made without understanding the people that they're impacting. And I think that it also drives us to a situation where, you know, people are fundamentally disenfranchised because they have very little control over what happens to them. Um, and, and people at the top lose track of, of who they're really impacting when they say, well, the model told me to do this. So you know, there's, 
there's always a danger with technology that we're going to lose a bit of our humanity by, by bringing it on. And, and I would be cautious as a society in how we, how much value we ascribe to it and which power structures we choose to change by making it sort of a core part of decision-making. It's a really interesting answer. You know, there's like a lot of politicians, particularly in the U S who, you know, there's this battle of, um, it seems like it's really raging around like automation of vehicles, uh, at the current point in time of like, you know, how do we, we know that it's coming. Like it's, it's nevertheless going to arrive. How do we deal with that? Is it a question of, you know, turning truck drivers into programmers? Is it a question of just stopping the technology as a whole? So do you, <laughs> of course there's no clear solution, but is there anything that sticks out to you as a, perhaps the best way forward in dealing with some of those issues and calming the social tensions surrounding them, best practices, perhaps yeah, from I Deloitte? Mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, we certainly try to keep um, the, instant, the interests of society at heart, and it's something that we really do think about. Um, for anyone that, that's really interested, we, we produced this series called Canada 150 to celebrate the uh, sequicentennial. And we, we really looked at, you know, what's Canada going to be like in 30 years? And, and what are the things that we need to do to make sure that we're continue to be successful as a society? I think that as, you know, a society that's, that's looking at these massive technological changes, you know, you can't regulate innovation. You know, as much as you try and make rules, people are always going to find ways around those rules or they're going to, you know, our ingenuity for breaking rules knows no bounds. Um, and, and I think what we really want to do is give people the right incentives to do the right thing. So, you know, we want to reward people who are using this technology to better. Um, and, and we want to, as opposed to just like trying to regulate it into, into submission, because I don't think that will ever happen. You know, what that means in a particular particular case i don't know I, I think maybe in the uh the situation of self-driving cars we want to encourage manufacturers to build cars that are safe we want to encourage manufacturers to build cars that you know don't hurt people um and and, and you know i think that some of tesla's struggles with drivers misusing their technology um or or things like that are bad so maybe we need to proactively incentivize companies that, you know, they could report on their, their uh, failure rates or their, their accident rates and companies with the best accident rates get a lower tax burden or something like that. Like, I, I, I don't know, but I think that always incentivizing people with the carrot is generally better than the sticker trying to regulate it. Seems like a pretty level-headed idea. Uh, <laughs> interesting. Um, so just to, to end things off and, on a more positive note, what is like the most exciting aspect of AI in your eyes looking ahead? So I, I am excited about, and then this is sort of my personal passion project. I've, I haven't found a ton of people who have who shared this view yet, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm just out to left field. I think that there is enormous value. There's enormous responsibility, but there's enormous value in taking some of the technologies and sciences that we use to manipulate consumer behavior as a company and turning that inwards. And what I mean by that is if you think about how someone interacts with Amazon, right, everything on that website, it has been curated for a specific emotional response and to generate a specific behavior. One click shopping is there because as soon as I see that impulse, there's no friction between me and making the purchase. 
right? The concept of if you like this, you'll probably like these four other things or customers that bought this, bought that. Everything about that site has been optimized, including their machine learning models to force me to make specific decisions or to encourage me to make certain decisions. And I think that we, as, as, a, you know, as a Canadian society, as businesses, if we were to take that technology and turn it inwards and say, well, what if I wanted to optimize the way people hire so that you know, we are less, there's less disparity between genders or people of races when we hire as an organization? What are the tools and technologies I can do to level the playing field? Is it, you know, priming people with the right information? Is it obfuscating names that are obviously gendered? Is it, you know, any, any one of a number of things where this technology can play that role? What if I wanted to encourage people to make more fair compensation decisions? Or what if I wanted to encourage people just to eat better food at the cafeteria at lunch? Like, we know so much about how we behave. And all we use it for as organizations is how to manipulate everyone else's behavior. Like, what if we turn the those tables inside and really started using all that knowledge and insight to improve the lives of our workers, the experience, our internal efficiencies. Like to me, that's where I think there's untapped value and where there's sort of a world of opportunity that still exists that that people haven't explored yet. That's an amazing answer. I don't think there's a better place to end off than that. Um, definitely some lots of things to to think about there, especially that last piece with the more positive applications of AI looking forward. Maybe uh, one of our members will take that to heart and do something special with it. So uh, anyways, um, Jeff, we want to say thank you so much for being our first guest on the podcast, hopefully first of many. Um, it's always super exciting to learn about how AI is being used um, in companies as large as Deloitte and the number of applications of those. So we're, we're uh, obviously really appreciative of your time. Thank you so much. Yeah, Rob, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's, uh, best of luck, guys. I'm looking forward to hearing the next podcast as they roll out. The Tech Tidbits podcast is produced and edited by Cindy Wen with music from the Unicorn Heads. If you wish to stay up to date on all upcoming episodes, check us out on our socials. Our Instagram handle is tech underscore tidbits, and our LinkedIn page is the Tech Tidbits podcast. We hope to see you back here for the next episode, and until then, Take care and all the best.